Hello and welcome to TBT's podcast. I'm Dan Friel. On this episode, we hear from Rico Hill of the Hoopville Warriors. A bit of warning, Rico's incredibly candid in this interview, and there are a few moments of some adult language, so be forewarned. By way of background, Rico grew up in Chicago with Britt Booker, the GM point guard for Hoopville. He attended Illinois State and led the Redbirds to -to back-to-back NCAA tournament appearances in 1997 and 98. He left school after his junior year and immediately began his professional career in Spain. In 1999, he was the 31st pick in the NBA draft. This interview was seriously one of my favorites ever, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Remember that you can subscribe to TPT's podcast on iTunes, and if you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating. It'll help spread the word. Thanks. Hey, Rico. Hey, what's going on, Dan? Nothing. How are you doing? Uh, I'm fine. It's been a little while since we've talked. Have you kind of recovered from the loss this summer with Hoopville? Yeah, I guess if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a tough one, obviously. And I think you guys, I, I've seen that now two years in a row, that elation one day and then the sadness the next. And um, it was something that I think you in particular handled with a lot of um, sort of been there attitude before, you know, like you've kind of been through some tough times, it sounds like. Yeah, I've been playing this game professionally since I was 21 years old. I mean, it's been a long time. I've seen a lot of different scenarios, a lot of different environments, and it just just comes with it's part of the game. You know, either you the last one celebrating, or you going home. You know, what I'm saying, We're talking about wait to wait till next year. How did you hear about TBT back in 2014? Uh, it actually came to me through a, a friend of ours. Um, he contacted me and Britt. And, you know, he was just talking to us about it. And, you know, it became more more just like an idea. And then before we once we started finding out stuff about it, Britt had did a lot of research and him and Miko started plugging away. And before you know it, shit, we were in the mix. So did you know what to expect? I mean, what was the the, the, the specifics of what you kind of knew about the event when Britt started digging into it a little bit? Uh, going out there, the expectation was just uh, – you know, to go play in a basketball tournament for some money. I mean, I won um, the A One Remix tournament in, in at Temple University in Philadelphia in 2013, and it was kind of like the year before this, like the first time we even started playing in those kind of tournaments. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, when it came the next year and it was five hundred thousand, we was like, "Oh, we got to do this." <laughs> you know? Yeah. So was it the same team that you had played with the year before that came together back in fourteen? No, honestly, you want to know. Half the players from one Chicago played with me for that oh, team. Really? We, yeah, we played for Team Born Ready. Lance Stevenson sponsored us. Okay. When he was playing with the Indianapolis Pacers, uh, I happened to play down there in the, in the summer league and got to know him pretty well. Went to his house for the Mayweather fight, stuff like that. But he sponsored our team to go out there. So how did the Hoopville team come together? You know, what was the initial conversations and phone calls like? I mean, for the past probably five or six years, Britt has been trying to figure out a way to start a men's team. And I guess the TBT created the platform for that. You know, it, it made it easier to recruit. We we, we know a, a lot of players. You know, we've been a part of a lot of guys' careers, getting started and helping them keep it going in, in one way or another. Just being a big brother, more so a mentor, or even being trainers to some of these guys. But um, this tournament actually gave us a platform to bring everyone together from the kennel and really get out there and have some fun and enjoy playing and kind of take you back to that old school high school feel where it's just you and your friends and your buddies. And, you know, you had that that, that feeling of uh, of invincibility when you're playing with your best friends, you know? You yeah, guys wh- feel like you can't lose. 
So, so just by background, I guess Britt runs an, uh, a youth program, an AAU program, I think down in Southern Illinois now, right? Yeah. And so he had been looking for a way to kind of get together, get a men's team, and then TBT presented itself, and it was almost a perfect fit, it sounds like. Exactly. We were looking for something to get into. We played a, a Chicago versus St. Louis game one time. We went down there and played. Uh, it was a nice environment for that. We ended up creaming those guys. We beat them by like 60 points or something. Which team did Britt play for, St. Louis or Chicago? No, nah, he played with Chicago. Okay, he good. brought us down there. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he's he's closer to St. Louis now, he's not giving up those Chicago roots, it sounds like. No, nah, he never plays against us. <laughs> we now, always play together. One of the things that was, was – it was really compelling when I heard about how you guys got to Philly in 14 is that you all drove a van. You packed into a van and drove. Yeah. How did that took, come together? Uh, first, we was waiting to see if we were going to be accepted. And then once we – uh, got the the notice from you guys that we were in and that we were all set to go, and we had to figure out who was going to get there. <laughs> Britt actually brought his he brought, he bought that truck two days before we left the Tahoe. He bought that truck down there for the trip. Uh, he needed a truck also, but he just bought it make sure he had room for the trip and re-rented the uh, what is it the Chrysler? It's one of those Chrysler trucks with TV in it. It was pretty nice town and country. Who drove? Uh, I drove the town and country. Britt drove the tile. Now, was that your position on the team as a leader that you you figured you had to be the one behind the wheel? Man, we always the ones that's responsible. But I've always been the driver ever since we were young. <laughs> <laughs> what was that experience like? You know, going there, and I think you said you know you just thought you were kind of entering a tournament. Did you know what to expect? Were you surprised when you got there? Saw the uniforms, the the signage, all that stuff. I think out of everybody, I might have been the most prepared for it because I saw how big the, the tournament in Temple was. Like, I never thought it was going to be as big a deal as it was. They had Sean Kemp there. They had Kay Michelle performing, Lance Stevenson, Michael Bivens from Bellevue DeVoe. And I was seeing, like, how these guys are really putting on nice tournaments out east. We don't have that kind of setting in, in Chicago. We just started getting something like that going with the Nike tournament at Whitney Young. Mm -hmm. But that, that's really, like, the first tournament that's brought a little pizzazz in. And entertainment and it's more than just basketball you know right, right. Uh, but I, but I see out on the east coast and other places in the United States man they they run in some really nice tournaments and when I heard about this and then I seen the, the layout on the internet where it was had at Philadelphia University and I seen all the gyms being used for it it was like oh this is gonna be it's gonna be big time and I seen uh, the live stream and stuff. So I know, like, there's going to be cameras everywhere. Pete, they didn't know that it was going to be like that, but I was kind of expecting that. But it, it even exceeded my expectations. So when you got there, you know, the first couple of games went really well. I think you all beat Cornell in that first season, um, first game, rather, that first year. Um, and then ended on a, a buzzer beater by Russell Robinson, who played, played at Kansas uh, for Big Apple Basketball. And I remember seeing Britt just collapse on the court and it looked like just complete devastation and exhaustion uh, from you guys. Can you describe a little bit about what that emotion was like, losing that way, uh, seeing your buddy since you've been 12, uh, you know, kind of devastated on the court like that? Well, it was, it was, you know, it was, you felt them. You know what I mean? Britt Brit has been a good player for a very long time. And, you know, guys dream of playing on that kind of stage in that kind of environment and then to finally get that chance. And for it to end like that, it was, I know it was big. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was hurtful. And all I could do was just, you know, comfort the guys and let them know, like, it's always next year. The tournament's going to get bigger, you know, and just keep that, kind of keep that seed planted 
so that everybody stay hungry and stay on their minds for the next year. But putting in all that work that he did to make sure this happened, made sure we had the transportation, everything. Britt did all the legwork. I, I have to admit, you know what I'm saying? I got three or four jobs, so I'm always busy doing something. Like, I work with the JDOC, too, but I also coach 17 and under AAU. I train. You know, I play for the Chicago Steam. I, I, play, I got a lot of different roles I got going on at the same time. And he took care of all of the all of the brunt work, and he just made sure I got the players. What was the ride back like? The ride back was it was kind of somber at first because you know Britt was trying to figure out if we respected him for crying or you know how to, how did we took it, and he got like once me we stopped in Ohio uh, at a gas station, and me and him kind of pulled off to the side to talk. And I just explained it to him. I said, bro, I said, the fact that you're crying lets me know that you care. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I've played in a lot of basketball games, Britton. Man, I've cried over basketball. <laughs> you know, yeah. when, when you work that hard and you you playing that hard, man, and you're trying to win. You don't want to, you know, second is like, it's almost like a... It doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> you know, you could be in the last game playing on the last day, but if you don't win, it's like it's not worth it. <laughs> you well, know? Some of the, yeah, some of the guys that have lost, you know, once they've advanced a few rounds, have said that they'd almost rather have lost the first game. Because uh, if you're going to lose, yeah. what difference does it make, right? I mean, do you feel that way? No, honestly, I just like the battle. So it's like it's like a part of me that tried to stop playing five or six years ago. You know what I mean? Like, you don't know this, but the reason why I stopped playing basketball then was because my oldest son tried to commit suicide six years ago. And, you know, I'm over all the way across the world. I'm celebrated on every continent. I'm making hundreds of thousands of dollars. And my son is here. He's miserable. You feel me? And there's just a, a part of me that I could not bring myself to leave then, since then. How old and was like, your son at the time? He was 13 years old, man. So how did you get that news? I'm at work. I was working for an internship at a real estate company in Lake Station, Indiana at the time. And I get a call from, uh, you know, Quinn Richardson's my first cousin. But his his right-hand man, the guy that works for him, who runs his restaurant in Orlando, his name is uh, Rio. And Rio called me because he's best friends with Cordell Henry, who's, uh, who's my son's uncle. And his sister is the mother of my child, Chastity Henry. So it's you see how close the the family bond is and how it's all woven together. Yes. Um, and um, Rio called me, and he told me what had happened. And I mean, it's like eight o'clock in the morning. It was like the earth just stopped moving. You know, it's like I couldn't breathe. And the first thing I did was I linked on my car because I took I stepped outside to take the call. I just linked on my car and I started praying like God, just please don't take my son from me. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I went back in the office. My coworkers knew something was wrong because the look on my face. I was, you know, just trying to hold myself together while I was packing up my my laptop and stuff to get ready to go to the hospital. And um, they asked me what happened, and I just told them, and I said, and I'll be back. And they was like, don't worry, take your time, whatever, just keep us in tune with what's going on. I arrived at the hospital maybe like 20 minutes later because I was flying, and um. I just remember walking in that room and him rolling over and him smiling at me and I knew that he was okay. 
you know, and once I knew that he was okay, like physically to my eyes, like I know whatever happened, you're going to get past it. It was like just a relief. And then we just started talking and, you know, I cried a little bit. My son never seen me emotional like that. So it was like the first time he really saw me cry. And I told him like, man, you scared me, dude. Like, <laughs> I don't care what's going on. Uh, you know what I'm saying? What kind of decision you face with or what you're going through, man. You can always talk to me. You can always reach out, you, can, you know? Yeah. But when you're thinking about our relationship, it's just built on summer times. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because for the other 10 months, I'm gone. So he didn't feel like he had the outlet. And for me, that was like, it, it crushed me because me and my father don't have a relationship like that. You know what I'm saying? We started building a relationship when I was 21 playing for the Clippers, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So for for me and him, it was big for me to be in my kid's life. Like That's why I left school early. That's why I made a lot of decisions that I probably wouldn't have made if I didn't have children already. But I was not going to be that guy that wasn't in his kid's life and wasn't taking that responsibility. So what happened after that? You, you quit playing internationally, came back, and I guess kind of reacclimated yourself to being in Chicago full time. Yeah, I, play, I, I did the real estate thing until I got my my license and stuff. So I do that. that you know, I have a residual income through that. I started working with Amantha's, um first as a residential counselor. And they they labeled me like a like a troubleshooter for the company, which means like um, I'm basically on call, which means I make my own schedule every week. I set up my own hours. I can work at whatever site they need me at at the time. And it's just like a pretty sweet deal. I can't even complain the way they taking care of me. You know what I mean? And they work with my schedule. They still allow me to coach AAU whenever the season comes around and take days off and, and travel with my team how I need to. How is your son doing now? Uh, he's great. He's, he's downstairs in his room um, studying for computer engineering in college now. That's wonderful. Where's he you in know, school? Um, he went to Moraine Valley last year, but this year he's going to Purdue Calumet. And you feel that the time that you've spent back home since you've retired from international basketball has made a big difference in his life, I take it? Man, it's made a big difference in all of my children's lives. It's made a big difference in my life. I mean, all the money I made and success I, I had playing basketball, it, it can't even compare to the success I felt as a man and as a father in the past five years. What has that been like for you, being back now for five years and, and sort of being there now 12 months a year for those kids, uh, yeah. you know, in um, light of giving up that, that professional career that you had overseas? Honestly, at first it felt like a... Almost like an ankle bracelet, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it did, you know? And But I got calls from, from Portugal. I got calls from France. I've, I've been getting calls pretty much every year, at least, if not by August, by at least January, you know, for, for teams that's in trouble and need help and they know I can turn them around. They know I'm a good leader. I, I played with young teams the past, probably like four or five years of my career overseas, and we've always had success. But it was just one of those things where I could not, I've committed to leaving and just couldn't get on the plane there. It's like my heart won't allow me to. You talked about how your decision to leave school was in, in part motivated by your desire to provide for your family. And I wanted to kind of walk that back if we can. You, so your junior year at Illinois State. You guys had made your second straight NCAA tournament appearance. I've read some some quotes from you about that experience that you had and how great it was. And 
how intense it was. And I think you upset was it Tennessee your junior year? Uh, we were we were ranked eighth. They were ninth in, as in the seeding. So I don't know if it was an upset. Yeah, People right, probably right. thought we were going to lose though. <laughs> right. But but that season we started ranked sixteenth in the Sports Illustrated. So we were tough, man. Right. We were n- number one team in defense in the country two years in a row, defensive field goal percentage. So it was, but it was after that season that you ended up signing a pro contract before ever having actually entered the NBA draft, right? I left. I actually left school in April, then, and um, it was because my mother. When I left, like before I left to go to, to college, in my house I had a a pretty significant role. I'm the oldest of three boys. My mother, you know, she remarried my youngest brother father, but they divorced when he was young. And pretty much ever since I was 12, I've been an adult in my house. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. My mother gave me an ATM card to, to her account when I was 14 because I've always been responsible, take care of business. And she needed me to have that kind of role in my, in my sibling's life because my mother was, man, she worked her ass off. My mother works 16-hour shifts, and she still works 12-hour shifts at 62 now. What does she do? She's a registered nurse. Okay. Uh, she's a charge nurse, so she's the highest nurse you can even go to. You know what I mean? Yep. But um, I watched her go back to school from to be a nurse's aide, to be an LPN, to be an RN. And when she went back to school, we would get on aid. And, you know, you know, we I knew how to take two steps back, what to take three or four steps forward. You know what I mean? And she showed me the grind in life, how you can just never to get complacent and always to strive for more, you know? And um, it was just one of those things when I when I got to school and I had been the man in my house and I'm, you know, I helped take care of finances. I helped balance a checkbook. I did a lot of the little things she didn't have time to do for. Her. And when I left to go to school, it was like things kind of unraveled for her because my, my younger brother, Sidney, he wasn't at the age enough where he was mentally aware of what really was going on and because i had always been the oldest i had took that responsibility so he didn't know nothing about that you know what i mean right and it's like he was thrown into the fire and he really wasn't ready for that position and she kind of had to try to balance both worlds and she started to to spiral you know she started uh gambling a little bit and at one point in my junior season uh this was after I, my mother i left school in april to go to the league my mother begged me to go back to school because I was the first person in my family, first male to go to go to college in my family. So she wanted me to have my degree. So I ended up going back, and because I had left in April and started training and stuff, I had a I had to make up some class. I had eight hours in summer school, but I had never had any problems with being eligible before that or anything like that. But um, the in the course of me going to summer school and taking care of business, working my job or whatever. I get a call at like five o'clock in the morning from my youngest brother, Antoine, and he's screaming. You know what I'm saying? And he's like, somebody's beating on the door and woo. And I'm like, what? So I'm, I'm at school. I'm only an hour away, hour and a half. I jump in the car. I fly to the house. I get there. He's sitting in the front room. Uh, he's crying. He's bawling. My mother is just sitting upstairs on the floor, like just frozen, man. Like, I don't know. Like, she just shut down. You know what I mean? The car had been repossessed. They had foreclosure notice on the house. And it was just one of those things. That was the longest drive back to school ever. You know what I mean? And it was just like, how how can I focus and concentrate down here knowing my life is good? You know what I mean? Like, I I don't have no words. But everything that I love and care about at home is falling apart, including this is the first house we've ever lived in in my life, Dan. We didn't get this house till I was 17 in the second semester of my senior year. I didn't even have frames on the on the beds before we left to go to college. It was just mattress. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
But it was the first time she had ever got herself. And it was like something that she was so proud of that she was trying to hold on to so bad. But she had been caught in like a money, a money pit, like one of those money schemes where it was a three part development to this, uh, to this house. And the way they had designed it, every time they finished part of the development, the taxes and, and stuff changed for that, for that, um, little community that we were in. And so they finished the first set. And we were only paying like nine hundred dollars a month. They finished the second set. Rent jumped to thirteen. And when they finished the third set, rent jumped to eighteen hundred dollars a month. My mother couldn't afford. She tried to. She was working around the clock trying to make sure she could afford it, but it just it wasn't it wasn't viable. So she went to the riverboat and was trying to you know what I'm saying win and keep it going that way, and end up getting in a bigger hole. And that's why she was sitting on the, f- the floor just frozen. It was like almost like having a breakdown trying to hold on to this material you know what i mean yeah and once i saw that i was just tore apart it was nothing that was going to keep me at school i called my point guard smiley who had signed with um johnny cochran sports agency at the time out of la and that was the year of the lockout so all the agents had their own teams out there in the lockout so uh, i called him joe wallace was our point man joe wallace flew me out there i called him on tuesday i flew out there wednesday and Britt went with me and we got off the plane and Britt was telling Joe, like, Rico going to kill and all this. But nobody had saw what I what I got off that plane and did before. And it was the first time I really started to believe in my abilities as a professional. But it was what I was playing for. And that's what people don't understand. When, when my heart and my mind is set in, in the right place, I'm unstoppable. And that was the first time I got a chance to see it. We got off the plane. We played against Ricky Davis, Baron Davis, Tracy McGrady, Jelani McCoy, both the O'Bannon brothers, Kelly McCarthy from um, Kentucky State, who was uh, or Kentucky Southern, one of them who was defensive player of the year in the SEC that year. Uh, and I gave their ass 39 off the plane. The general manager from Fuenlabrada, who was Ramon Fernandez, who's the general manager of Real Madrid now, he brought me to Fuenlabrada as the youngest player in ACB history at that particular time. And we ended up finished fourth that season. I ended up rupturing the disc in my back, though, in like January of that season. So when I came back for the draft, I actually did 12 workouts with a ruptured disc. And that's how I still was able to get drafted, even though I was hurt, because I showed a lot of heart and I competed. I did great in my workouts, even though I was hurt. What's that experience like? I mean, you're you're going from a situation where, you know, you've grown up in Chicago, lived an hour away in college, and now suddenly you're in Spain at 21. Do you speak Spanish? Fluently. You do? As a, result of, as a result of your time there, or did you speak it before? Well, just because of being there. That's great. First that's- phrase I learned was, come what he says. Like, how do you say this? that's an important one to know so what was that like at 21 you know you're now so far away from home and and you know uh, earning a a living now to support your family and help support your family yeah it was it was beautiful at first uh i took my my fiance at the time went with me my first wife uh she was the the mother of my my middle two sons Britton and xavier you know i got five kids i got a I got Sharon, who was my oldest, then Rico, then Britton, Xavier, and then Kendall, who was my youngest at four. So they ranged from 19 to four years old. Um, but I had Rico on campus with me the whole three years. And me and his mother, had we had kind of transitioned from being girlfriend and boyfriend to being like friends. You know what I mean? And we still, we still cool and close to this day. 
But uh, with Shauna, it was like I had another baby on the way. I didn't want to be away from her. You know what I'm saying? She she agreed to go with me overseas, so I took her with me. And that probably made the adjustment a little bit more easier, just having family there with me or somebody there with me, you know? Right. But it was tough, though. I ain't going to lie, because you get off the plane at that time, you didn't have cell phones that you could use internationally. They didn't have the Internet yet. It was just a thought. You know, and you over there in 1998, just like, man, what am, what am I doing here? You know, and the only thing that keeps me there is the fact, OK, I'm making twenty thousand dollars a month, but it's to make sure that my family is straight. Well, that's the difference. I don't think that a lot of younger people recognize is how different communications were back then. In 1998, you know, you had a phone on a cord that you would call somebody with and maybe do it once a month. Yeah. And it cost almost, I remember the first week there, I was calling home like I was still in the States. I checked out my hotel to go to, to, go to my new apartment, and my phone bill was $3,500. Yeah. And I was just <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I called home like, hey, guys, I'll talk to you when I get back. <laughs> i call you on Christmas or something, you know? <laughs> Unbelievable. So then drafted by the Clippers, two spots from the first round, 31st overall, and then you went to training camp. And what happened there? I went to training camp and it was like uh it's like I crashed the prom. Uh the Clippers, I never worked out for the Clippers. The Clifter the Clippers drafted me in hopes of a trade with Sacramento. Sacramento was who wanted me. But they only had the forty six pick that year. And when my workout for Sacramento, uh I worked out against Sean Tolliver, who was defensive player of the year in the Pac Ten that year for UCLA. And he told me after my workout, he said, man, you had the best workout of anybody by far, head and shoulders. I think I might have missed like 19 shots in an hour and a half with defense. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, And we had played that year in Arco Arena in the tournament. So I, it was just the way I felt in that gym. I felt super comfortable. You know what I mean? Right. It felt like this is where I need, like where I'm supposed to be. And um, I remember leaving that workout from Sacramento and my agent, Craig McKenzie, calling me and telling me that L.A. wanted me to come in for work at the Clippers. And I had just did 13 workouts in like 21 days. And my body was my, my back was screaming. I just couldn't wait to get home. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of so so I didn't go. I didn't I didn't go work out for the Clippers. And when they drafted me, it was like a shock because um Craig was telling me I wasn't, it's like, you're not going to, you're not going to go to the Clippers. You know what I mean? And when they took me, we both kind of looked at each other. And he was like, okay, then the phone rang and it was Sacramento on the phone. They had a trade for Corliss Williamson and Gerald Wallace for me and Maurice Taylor. At the time, Maurice Taylor had a contract for 69 million on the table and he turned it down because he was scared if he signed that they wouldn't trade him. It was a sign and trade, but he was scared if he signed that they wouldn't trade him. And he didn't want to stay at Clipper. He wanted to go somewhere where they was going to win. He voided out his contract. I ended up getting caught in the shuffle on the six, two, three out of, you know what I'm saying? When he on the key five. And I played well. Don't get it twisted. And I shit. But the one thing is like, well, I forgot they directed the player personnel name was. Well, Weltman. I don't recall. Well, his name, well, it's, I think it's Weltman because he's the one who drafted me. And okay. he called me and, and talked to me. And, uh, they had no idea that I had perimeter skills and that I was NBA ready. You know what I mean? They thought I was like a, a project, a guy who played the four or five, and they were going to develop my perimeter skills. And Coach Stallings, I have to admit, he did a fantastic job of developing my whole game. Even though I only played the four in the games in college, I always did my individual workouts all three years with the ones, twos, and threes. In practice, I played every position, you know what I'm saying? Because I knew all the plays from every spot. 
he he really let me evolve, you know what I mean, into the player that like I felt like I can play any position and don't give up nothing. I'm strong enough to stick fours and fives that's bigger than me. I'm fast enough to stick threes and twos who might be a little quicker, but I just know angles and I I, I watch you. I I figure you out during the course of the game. So even at the first half, like I remember playing against Olivia St. John and he gave me 18 in the first half. And he was playing with the Mavericks and I was with the Grizzlies in Summer League. And um, Coach Hollis screamed at me like, who the fuck's going to stop Olivia? <laughs> and I just looked at him. I was like, he won't score another fucking bucket. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I just snapped back. And he finished with 20 points. I promise you. And he hit two free throws with like eight seconds left in the game. <laughs> but but when you – I've always been that kind of guy. Coach Hollis knew this, that if you challenged me, if you lit that fire underneath me, I always responded. You know, and he might have been like the the only coach in my whole life that really understood me. And I hate the way our relationship ended when I left school because it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. You know, uh, when I left school in April, I did the asshole. You know what I'm saying? I had talked to Marty Blake. I had knew my draft position and all that. And I kind of went in the office with my mother to tell him I was leaving. But I was cocky. You know what I'm saying? I kind of, in a way, shitted on him. And I was bogus for that shit. And... He didn't help me after that either <laughs> with his yeah. comments towards me and the way he responded to that when I left. But I always said to him, like, the difference between me and you, Stan, because he promised me he would stay my four years. And I I would admit that he turned down Michigan. He turned down a lot of good opportunities. You know what I mean? So I always felt bad about that. But at the same time, I told him, I said, when you stay, in, you stay at Illinois State, you still get your 225 a year. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And your family good. I say, if I stay coach, I know you don't break no rules. I know you by the book. I'm not going to ask you to put yourself in no bad position. And I know I got a, I got a baby right now. I got one on the way. My mother done going through a financial crisis. I just felt like responsibility-wise, I had outgrown college. I was at the point where I needed to make some money. It was for peace of mind more than anything. And um, did he did he understand that when you put it that way? We we didn't see eye to eye on that. He just felt like if I stayed, I was I was guaranteed to be a first rounder next year. And he knew I would I would get what I deserve, and he knew I would have my degree. He was looking at me more so as a father. You know what I'm saying? He was he was he was important to me, man. Like. I never thought I would be 32 years old and still hear his voice in my head. You know, some of the things he used to say to me that was all like, he, he used to have these little things we had to learn every day on our practice uh, plan. You had to know the offensive emphasis for practice, the defensive emphasis. And then he had always had a thought for the day. And those three things, if he asked you any time during practice, I don't care if it's during suicides or just during free throws, if he asks you, you got to know it. If you don't know it, everybody on the end line. That's how important it was to him. You know what I mean? And it'd be little things like the nothing great was ever accomplished without sacrifice. You plant the seeds of the day for the harvest of tomorrow. Mental is the physical as four is to one. You know, things that you you when you 20, 18, 19 years old, and you're like, why well, I remember this? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> like this ain't part of basketball, this ain't part of practice, but then you realize he was planting seeds for you for you to be a good man. Once you get older and you, you separated from that kind of situation and you hear those thoughts when you, you getting you getting you put into a big situation, a big task or a big decision, you can hear those voices. Were you able to rec- reconcile with him? 
I still haven't spoke to him. I called him like two, three years ago. And um, the crazy part was he knew it was me. As soon as he answered the phone, I was like, what up, coach? He was like, Rico Hill. (laughs) (laughs) And we've talked and, you know, like we've done the preliminaries, but I want to look him in his eyes. I owe him a hug. I owe him an apology. You know what I'm saying? I've never done that. And that's just something that like the past three, four years since I've been home and you start dealing with terms of the heart, you know, it's, I realize a lot of things that money can't can't suffice. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when it comes to people that's important to you or people that you actually love and you care about, it's like those those feelings don't go away. You know, it's like as you get older, you start understanding like how important this person was in your life and how important it is to you to reconcile this, to bury that that hatchet, that axe. And it's like some things like I realize I haven't got past because of that. You know what I mean? But as I'm maturing and I'm starting to understand how life really works and you start making the right decisions and, you you know, you're not afraid to say I'm sorry or to go try to correct the mistake. You know, your pride gets out the way as you get older because you feel like the relationship with that person is more important than your pride or your ego. You know, and I'm just I'm just getting to that point where I'm just learning. You know? Where does and that where does this come from, Rico? I mean, did you I mean, obviously, with the, what happened with your son, I'm sure that that caused a lot of introspection and just having the opportunity to do some of the things that you're doing now professionally clearly makes you think about these things. But where does this come from? I mean, were you motivated by some moment or, or issue that one over the other really kind of made you start thinking about this stuff? I think it's uh, the tip of the iceberg was what happened to Rico, but I got right with God at 28, 29. And um, I just remember the day I wasn't at church. I wasn't in a, a holy setting or nothing. I was in my old neighborhood, Maple Park, where we did the interview at. And my life just seemed like it was going in a downward spiral. And I was just like, man, I've always tried to help everybody and do the right thing. Like, why is this happening to me? You know what I mean? And then... As I'm saying that, I'm in the back of the park, and everybody knows when I'm back there. I'm thinking I've been doing that since I was 11 years old. So they'll just ride past. They might honk the horn or something, but nobody disturbs me. And um, God started showing me, me through his eyes. And it wasn't the beautiful picture that I had in my head. And after that day, I've been different. And, you know, the the change didn't come immediately, but it started like a snowball then. And it's just been getting bigger and bigger ever since then. When you were in Chicago this year, I I do want to talk about the Chicago experience uh, playing in TBT this past year. But you had a press conference, and I've seen you do this now two years in a row, where you sort of have this presence. uh, And it sounds like it's a progression for you. It doesn't sound like maybe it's always been there, but maybe it has. But you have this presence over the guys in your team that are really accomplished players and they all seem to look up to you. And I'm wondering, you know, is that something that you think has come since that 28, 29 year old period of your life? Or is that something that, you know, maybe as the de facto father figure in your home, you've kind of always had. I've always been kind of like a big brother, father figure, because like you said, my situation in my family, but it was even bigger than that because before we got that house with just me and my mom and my two brothers at 17, we always stayed with a family member. So I lived with Quentin for three years. 
he went to Brother Rice his freshman year. You know, he always dreamed of playing with me. He got drafted by the same team a year apart because I was politicking for him when, when I was in L.A. You know what I mean? Like, so I've always had that that kind of role, but I just don't think I I understood the influence that I really had until I got right. You feel what I'm saying? Like, I, it was, I was naive to my ability. I didn't know, like, if because of the way I am in my neighborhood, if I was a basketball player, everybody else would want to be one. Or if I was the drug dealer, they would want to be that, too. They wanted to be whatever I was because they thought I was cool. You feel what I'm saying? Or, or I was the one. And when you 18, 19 years old, you got people in your neighborhood saying, Rico going to save the hundreds. You looking at them like, what you mean? You know, because I work with Senator Emil Jones. Like, I was always... uh I always excelled in school. I was a gifted student. I was even invited to go from um, from I, when we took the Iowa test. Uh, Iowa test of basic skills you take every year in Illinois. And when I took them in sixth grade, I tested on the twelfth grade level. My lowest score was eleven point three. So I got invited to um, take the the SATs at Whitney Young as part of the gifted student program, and I passed the SATs with like a nine ten then. You know what I'm saying? So I was already eligible for school for basketball. I got a, a, accepted to the school called the Aurora Academy of Math and Science, where I would have did three years there. I would have graduated from high school at 15, and I was guaranteed an Ivy League education. At that time, all I wanted to be was a doctor, so I was thinking I was going to be the next Doogie Howser at 23. <laughs> right. No bullshit, because my mother was a nurse. I was her study partner, so I was intrigued with the medical field as well. You know, So I just absorbed it. And um, when I went out there to that school to go visit, I just didn't fit in. It's like I, I like I like school and I like being pushed mentally, but I also needed that part after school to physically exert energy and to be active and stuff like that. And they didn't have those type of programs. And the kids there were kind of just like it just seemed like they was real uptight. My grandma was mad that my mother didn't force me to go, you know, because she right. was like, he could have been the next <laughs> Dr. King or something. You know, she yeah. was just saying stuff like that. But. It was my mother always let me kind of make my own decision and she trusted my instincts. Like if something didn't feel right or because I mean, you know, how I many times I've been at the park and we playing basketball and I just get this chill through my body like, man, it's time to go. And I'll just call my little brothers from off the playground and we'll just start walking out the park. And when we get to the back, you just hear gunshots. So my family knew me for that. You know what I'm saying? Like I always had the instinct where I always kept people out of danger and I knew when something bad was about to happen. So if like if my mother had a dream or if I had a dream, my grandma would come in there and ask us vividly, like, what happened to your dream and stuff like that. And my mother, like, she ended up getting her gift blocked. But she was the type that she could see stuff before it happened. Like, she had premonitions of her brother getting killed. She knew exactly how he was going to kill, when, where, what time, and how they did it. And she had the dream two weeks before it happened. Same thing with one of my nephew, one of her nephews and another one of her sisters. So, but she ended up, I guess, some kind of way. Um, my grandfather was a pastor and a 33rd degree Mason and some kind of ritual they did to block her gift. But it's something in our, that runs through us. So we descendants from Geechee and Ethiopian Indians, but it's something that's, that's amongst us as, as family members. I don't know how to explain it, but we all connected. You got, um, some kind of a gift. And I know that because the way that you were speaking about, when you graduated from eighth grade, you had 32 boys in your class. And by the time you graduated from high school, there were only 16 that uh, either weren't in jail or weren't dead. And you talked about how important tough love, tough mindedness, uh, knowing which team you really played for 
um, was the most important thing in your life? The one thing that that that's been the how you say the backbone for all of us to even be successful, even to be chosen to be on this stage. Man, we had to have tough love to make it. You feel me? You you guys watch TV every day. You see the statistics. You see people getting killed. I remember we graduated with 32 boys in our eighth grade class. By the time we graduated from high school, only 16 of us was alive or not in jail. We seen it firsthand. We lived it. We didn't been in shootouts, drive-bys, all of that. Just playing basketball on the courts. Not even being a part of it. You, you are a part of it. You feel me? So you have to be tough-minded, man. And you got to put the things that you love in front of what's in front of you every day in the street because the distractions are everywhere. But you got to remember what team you really play for. That's your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your friends that really, really your friends, not the guys posing. You feel what I'm saying? And we the kind of guys that we see through that, man. And we want to be a part of something that's authentic. And when it's authentic, man, it can't can't be duplicated or uh, fabricated. It is what it is. Is that something that was spontaneous when you said that, or had you had you thought about those things before? I mean, I work in the group setting with these kids every day, man. That's out here doing these, committing these murders. Everything you see on TV, these are the same guys that walk into my program, and I got to look them in the eyes and try to talk to them about something positive. <laughs> yeah. When when they go home every day, some of these guys, man, I drop them off at their house because I pick them up and drop them off too. But I come to pick them up and I get to their house and you see 30 guys in front of their house and you know that this is the trap building. This is where everything happens and he lives on the second floor. He just moved there. He doesn't know any of these guys. He's threatened to go in and out of his house every day. So he carries a gun. And then once they once they finally get comfortable enough to try to try him or or try to hurt him, you know what I mean? He pulls a gun on him. The guys that live in the building call the police and he catch a case just because he's carrying a gun to protect himself. You feel what I'm saying? What do you say to a kid in that situation, though? Because Man, it's, it's, it's different for it's, you. You know, you had sports and obviously an internal drive to avoid those situations. But a kid like yeah. that, like, what do you, what can you say to somebody in that in those shoes? It's tough. I mean, because I come from, I come from a house with uh, my grandma's house. Before we moved in the house, I never finished. But it was 22 people in a four-bedroom house. So that's what I come from. You know what I mean? I lived there all the way to eighth grade. So, and then we moved in with Quentin in high school when his mother passed. But it's always been a big satin like that. And, you know, if you're not home when dinner eats, sometimes you don't eat, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So I can, I can really, because I come from the gutter, it's like I'm relatable to everybody. I've had the lowest of the lows and the highest of the highs. So I can meet anything in between head on, you know what I'm saying? Like, and you can see it out of eye and you can explain it and make it and use words and use terminology that they, they, they can receive, you know, that they can understand. And sometimes you have to get on their level. And I just don't think people have, everybody has the ability to see things from a different perspective. And I think that's where my gift comes from, where I can actually like jump in your shoes and feel your pain. You know what I mean? Some days somebody could tell me their story and I could be right there with them and I could be in tears. You know what I mean? Because I can see it. I can feel it. And like, it's like I can smell it and everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I guess because I plug into people like that, that's why I've been receptive everywhere I've went overseas and all over the world. I have friends and family that 
I'm talking about people that, that I love and that they love me genuinely. You know what I'm saying? Like, forget basketball, forget everything else. Just, man, come visit me. You know what I mean? And I think because of that, that ability to open up to people and to really care about others like you care about yourself, I think that's been the reason for most of my success, even in even at college, even in as a professional overseas and stuff like that. It's just um, certain personalities hold the team together. You know, and when you come overseas and you're the American and you're getting paid the most money, all the girls like you, handsome. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard for guys to like you. <laughs> just just being honest, just from the first day, it's, it's hard. And you have to you have to take the bullshit that come with it and not meet it with bullshit. You got to meet it with love. And eventually you'll. You'll overpower whatever feelings they got going towards you that's negative. If you continue to be positive and you continue to do the right thing, a person will respect you. And once they respect you, then you open the door to building a relationship that could that could eventually lead to love. So do you feel like you're you're getting through to some of these guys that you're working with, these young kids that you're working with now? Oh, I know it because a lot of these guys call me on Saturdays and Sundays. I go by their house and talk to them and their mothers and I cut their hair and Stuff like that, you know what I mean? Like, uh, they end up really taking to me, and they really end up changing. I mean, I've got a couple guys in school. They playing for top twenty-five programs now. Guys that never been on the team before, and can and can play. When I mean can play, I mean like, dude, you should have been on the team ten years ago. You know what I mean? And it's like because of all the people I know and the resources I have to direct these kids to different avenues in their world, I feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. You know what I mean? A lot of social work jobs don't be the most rewarding financially. And I knew that going into it. But the rewards I have been getting, like spiritually, emotionally, man, it's, it's, it's fulfilling. You know what I'm saying? It, it excites me to go to work every day. That's probably why I got two, three other jobs, too, to compensate for that. But <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are the other jobs that you have? Uh, I coach AAU for the athlete within who used to be part of Full Pack at South. Um, we started our own company three years ago, got our own gym building lions and we, we, we're small, but we're growing and we're going hard. And the owner of this company is, was part owner of, of, uh, was Illinois old school. So he had a 15, 20 years of success in this program and this, in this area. You know what I mean? So I've been working with Derek. We actually used to play against each other. His name is Derek Moldis. Uh, his father was an NBA vet. He went to Loyola as a scholarship player, great shooter, great player himself. Um, but I've been working with him for the past three or four years with the athlete within, and we've been growing, and it's become like we're becoming a real a real force <laughs> in the AU world in Chicago. Um, I play with the Chicago Sting. You know, they still pay me. Ryan to pay me anywhere from like this year, I'll be making ten thousand dollars for three months. You know what I mean? Right. Like he, he takes care of me. Like just to keep me playing and staying active because I just like to compete. And he loves the way that I make the young boys develop on, on his team. I've helped him build his program from something that was more run like a, it was more like an AAU team at first to now. We, we, we've been, um, we've been reached out to for the bid for the D league team for next year. So he's been sending me all the litigation between him and Les Brown and the NBA and the commissioner and stuff like that through my through, through my emails. And he said if we get the D League bid, he wants me to be in the front office with him next year. So I've been just doing what I've been doing, you know what I mean? Like sticking with it. But everything that I've really been a part of in the past five six years since I've been home is now 
it's like coming to fruition. They're, they're starting to be viable things to be involved in, you know. And sometimes you got to do that leg work and you got to you got to take those bumps and those bruises. But it's worth it when you at the end you get to kind of be your own boss. And, you know, you you got that freedom to move and to really have your, your input and suggestions to make the thing something special like you want it to be, like you visioned it to be, you know. And well, that's the part. Kind of talking about something special, it was clear in 2015 with Hoopville, especially when I saw that ESPN profile that talked about you and um, and your relationship with Britt, there was something special there, and there is something special there between you and Britt. It sounds like, I didn't know this, but did you name one of your sons after him? Yeah. So you've been friends with Britt since you've been 12, and I was curious what that was like to you know, talk to ESPN, get that interview, be back in Chicago playing with this team, you know, on, uh, you know, a, a stage where you had a lot of family and friends cheering you on. What was that like? For me, it was like the freshman year I felt like I was supposed to have. Like, you don't know, but me and Brick committed to go to DePaul at sophomores in high school. They went on probation. And you would have been playing in that gym. Yeah, but they went on probation because Tommy Klansman stayed at a booster cabin and one of their point guards, Jermaine Watts, got caught with some weed or something. Somebody sent it to him from Arizona. They went on probation for three years. So that would have been our first three years of college. You know what I mean? We wouldn't have been able to – people wouldn't have been NCAA eligible. And that's the whole reason why you go to school, you know? And we went from being a package deal to DePaul to end up going our separate ways, Illinois State and Colorado State. And it was like – you know, I always wanted to play there. Like, even when I used to come watch Quentin play when he was in school, it was just that feeling like, man, I should have been here. And Joy Maya, he's still mad at me to this day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But Joy was my guy, man. And I really, like, all my life, I watched Channel 9 growing up. DePaul plays every game on TV here locally. It was just something that I wanted to be a part of, like, since I, as long as I could remember. Um the one thing that won that Coach Donner's won on was the fact he was the first letter I ever got from any school though was from Illinois State. First letter I ever got as a recruit. And um Coach Donner's when he found out DePaul went on probation, he really put the press on me. I mean, there was nowhere that I played that him or one of his staff wasn't there representing. And they made they made obvious they wanted me to see them, they wanted to know that they were there, you know what I mean? And you got other schools, they trying to pay you, they trying to offer you the world and tell you you're going to be the best thing since chocolate milk. And Coach Stallings was, he was the only one who came in, in my house and told me that if you work hard and you have the right attitude and the right focus to, you know, disguise the limit, which means it all depends on what I put in. You know what I mean? And that was the realest thing I heard out of the whole process. And that's what I wanted to be a part. I've always wanted to be a part of things that mean something that you can put your heart into because when my heart is in it, then it's like, I'm all in and you don't have to worry about, you know what I'm saying? Nothing after that. <laughs> that's what you were saying. It's that you want to be a part of something authentic and something yeah. that's real. Cause my dream was to play for the Chicago bulls and to be an Olympian. That was my dream. And probably still is, you know, yeah. until like, until the knees go out, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but just to be able to rep the city that I love, man, to play in front of the people that I care about and inspire them to do something good. You know what I mean? That I got My mother got 12 brothers and sisters. I had a hundred cousins by the time I was 14 and they all looking up to me. You know what I mean? So it was like, 
to to be there and actually be there in that light and that focus and everyone's there and they can watch it and come home and they don't have to be depressed about their life or their situation. They can see hope. They can feel it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that would have been big to me. And I felt like that's the main reason why I haven't left to go back overseas because I felt like, okay, I made all this money. Yeah, I help people pay for their houses and, you know, I don't ever got to worry about a place to live and stuff like that. But uh, I, I read a proverb one day where it's like, if you, you, you give a man a fish, he'll eat for one day. But if you teach a man to fish, he'll eat the rest of his life. And that's the part I didn't get to with my family. It's like I was giving you stuff, but I never showed you how to get it yourself and how to have that feeling and keep it sustained. You know what I mean? And that's what I've been doing probably the past five, six years. It's just, you know, letting people know it's okay to work a job. You know, you can work two, three of them if you have to. You got to do what you got to do, man. And you got to be happy about it. And that's something you should be proud of. You know what I mean? Not vice versa. These streets ain't going to save you. And it's like the same speech I was giving to my younger cousins or siblings or peers is the same speech I get to the kids I work with every day. And it's just like that hold on, like, man, just put your work in. And, you know, and when you, when you're talking to guys on the street, they're not addicted to, to crack or marijuana. They're addicted to fast money. They're addicted to easy money. You feel what I'm saying? When all you got to do is just stand there with something in your pocket and somebody walks up to you and just give you money all day. That kind of ruins the fact, the, the the philosophy of earn. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And what you have to explain to these guys is the feeling that you get from earning something, you will never get from just selling drugs. You will never understand that feeling until you 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 sweat <laughs> and you actually have to, you know what I'm saying, accomplish something that you felt like in the beginning you couldn't accomplish. You know what I mean? And the feeling that comes from that is something that can't be taken away from you when you get arrested and they take your little bag of stuff you got in your pocket. Now you feel like you're nothing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When if you earned something, you earned your degree, you earned your high school diploma, you you got your first job and you made the 90 day probation period and became a full time employee, became part of the union. You earned that. Can't nobody take that from you when you get that card. You know what I mean? You a licensed carpenter, you a you licensed plumber, whatever it is that you decide to do, you're that. You know, and you're trying to put that into people. It's it's kind of hard because the mentality here in Chicago is, man, I want it now. You know what I'm saying? Nobody wants to earn anything. Rico, this has really been a thrill uh, talking to you. And I hope that we can touch base again in the spring. And I hope to see you back in TBT. Do you have high expectations for Hoopville in 2016? Oh, yeah, because I'll be there. I'll be like 245 next year. So it won't it won't be a surprise like I'm battling retirement anymore. <laughs> That's great. So I'll be active and I'll be definitely ready with the guns blazing. That's great to hear. Rico, thanks again and I'll talk to you soon. All right, thank you.